if we look back to 2010 and then forward to 2030, uh, what inning are we in and why in a sense of the evolution of, of FinTech? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to throw out some kind of unjustified thoughts. Um, yeah, I've always thought this was like a harder question because I think it varies. I think it, my guess is all of us have, have seen this, you know, FinTech is a pretty broad brush to paint with. And there are certain categories of payments that have actually been venture funded for like 20 years now. Um, so I'd say in some categories, like, like payments, we're probably in kind of second, maybe third of, of kind of many innings. Um, but there's other categories, you know, healthcare payments, B2B payments, where I feel like we're like in the early part of the first inning. Um, I'd say kind of anecdotally, though, as a fintech venture investor, I feel like we're in like the, the second or third inning. And the reason I say this is I remember when I kind of first started, which was just like four or five years ago, uh, most of the entrepreneurs that I was meeting were former world pay executives that had decided that they were going to build something really interesting. Uh, and I feel like a really big difference I'm noticing is I'm now talking to a firm, you know, alumni and Stripe alumni and Robinhood alumni that are kind of building kind of next generation, kind of highly targeted uh, specific financial technology solutions that we just didn't even know to think about building four or five years ago. So in that, in that regard, it feels like we're in the second generation of something. Uh, but categorically, on like a vertical, by vertical basis, still super early. Yeah, I wouldn't, <clears throat> I wouldn't disagree with any of that. I think uh, the way I sort of think about it is, you know, PayPal was top of the first, right? And I think that there were a couple other companies that kind of came out of that kind of early 2000s to 2010 era, which I'd call the first inning. Uh, inning two, maybe into inning three is probably the 2010s, right? Um, and we've obviously some iconic companies being built during that time. You think of the stripes of the world, the plaids, um, you know, the, the firms, the app pays and so on and so forth. So, you know, 2010s was a great time for FinTech. I think there was just a wealth of companies created. And I think, um, you know, we're some, somewhere in FinTech 3.0, which is probably the third inning. Um, and it's going to be very exciting to see what happens. Yeah, so I, I definitely don't uh, disagree with anything that either of you guys have said. I, I guess I'll try to, you know, reject the premise of the question. I think that uh, innings, since baseball is a nine-inning game, like it's it's hard to to frame it when we're currently living in it. Like to, we'll we'll know, you know, in fifty years from now, what two thousand twenty-one was in terms of the innings for fintech. But I think if we frame it more as a, a TV show, so I think that we're firmly around season three, season four. The first two seasons were pretty solid. The third season was incredible, was excellent. And everyone's super pumped about what's coming next. It's it's definitely going to be syndicated. It's going to be on networks for a long time, and probably uh, you know Netflix will pick it up in about ten years from now too. So um, I think that everyone's on board. Uh, everyone's going to be talking about it at the water cooler, and that's where we are in fintech right now. But uh, but we'll see how it goes in the future. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I would also reject the premise that it's more like a TV series because that can get canceled for someone you know, speaking against wokeness. And I don't think FinTech is going to suffer from the same uh, fate, but I do appreciate you, you challenging the premise. So let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, the last year and uh, COVID has accelerated digitization for many industries. Um, you know, in your view, how has COVID impacted the opportunity in FinTech and specifically for, for startups um, looking to exploit inefficiencies or create new, new categories? 
Well, I think everybody would agree that it just created a whole bunch of new opportunity, right? Um, I think there was some hesitancy if we think about a year, what the world looked like a year from now, right? There was a lot of, not just in fintech, but in tech startup world in general, there was a lot of uncertainty. And uh, it obviously there's been some real winners, right? Uh, there's been some, some companies that have struggled, but there's also been a lot of real winners. And you could kind of talk about a lot of different areas. I'll just pick on one and I'll, I'll let others talk about other, other areas. But if we just think about e-commerce for a moment here, right? Um, that is a, let's talk about the merchant base there. I think if you look at everything around serving e-commerce, whether it's the payment side, whether it's the lending side, you know, um, all of that, it, you know, has just as we've watched the, and everyone's seen that chart, right? As, as, as 10 years has, has happened in six months, there's been a whole bunch of opportunity. And the really interesting thing about it, I think, is that all of a sudden you kind of see categories that were kind of thought of as like the sort of dog categories, right? Like lending, for example, right? That was considered a gone category. Nobody wanted to be in, in it. Like, you know, um, everybody knows the story of Lending Club and On Deck and Can Capital. And we definitely saw the further sort of um, deterioration of some of those business models. But out of that, we also saw the birth and acceleration of some quote unquote lending businesses that are now doing really well, right? I'm talking about Affirm, I'm talking about, um, you know, about Afterpay, about Klarna, you know, these are quote unquote lending businesses. I think they look a little bit more like payments businesses, but because of the underlying merchant base, which is an e-commerce merchant base, um, you know, they've been able to do really well with, with relatively low loss ratios and, um, and a lot of the success. So, you know, there's a lot of interesting stories where categories like that or, or business models like that, that were traditionally thought of as sort of uh, broken were, were actually proven to be successful just with a different underlying base. So that's been really cool. Yeah, definitely agree uh, with Alan uh, in terms of the e-commerce aspect. Uh, I'll take sort of also maybe a little bit of a different approach in answering just to give a different perspective. And that's that I think with the tremendous influx of capital from VCs into fintech over COVID, uh, and that wasn't obviously unique to fintech. It pretty much happened after Sequoia sent out their, uh, you know, their, their post about it seemed like the good times were coming to an end again. And then a month later, <laughs> we were back, back to the most bull market that we've seen in, uh, you know, in the last decade, um, there was just a tremendous amount of capital that was flooding into the early stage. And what I've, at least I've, uh, you know, seen locally is that founders who maybe previously wouldn't have considered starting a company right away, pretty much just saw the amount of capital that was there at the seed stage and were emboldened to go out and start companies. And I think as, uh, as Alan or maybe Vivek mentioned earlier, uh, we're really starting to see the second or maybe even third generation of founders who have, who were trained and were brought up in these large companies that have been built in fintech and now sort of it's you know been the marriage of great timing opportunity in terms of capital availability and tailwinds from covid uh, paired with also the experience that they've actually been through to go out and start their own companies yeah i, I think you know like i'll, I'll mention and, and Jonathan did as well i think you know e-commerce has done super well i think one of the things that we've been a little bit mindful of is that venture is like a like a virtuous echo chamber, right? And certainly it, it is better for venture capitalists if like digital adoption is better. And so I think we've been trying to be really objective about which categories life is actually easier in and which categories we just want life to be easier in for an early stage startup. Um, and I think the example I'd give or, or kind of the, the framework that we've been applying is that COVID gave certain technologies a chance, right? If you think about in healthcare, like telemedicine got a chance. 
um, in restaurants, QR code based kind of pay a table got a chance. Um, and, and I think the way we've been kind of internalizing it is how good is the technology and given the opportunity, will it create a valuable enough customer or user experience such that you cannot put it back in the bag, right? And I think there are certain places that have definitively been successful. I think pay at table is actually a really good experience at most restaurants. And I, I don't think it's going away, certainly in the United States. Um, but I think there are other categories where the experience has been really bad. Um, and I, you know, we're, we're trying really hard to index against those and make sure we're not getting overexcited because a lot of those look really darn good, um, particularly in enterprise SaaS, right? We're seeing some of the craziest fundings in the earliest stages of financial services um, under the premise of like, oh, COVID is making this easier, but we just invested in a pre-revenue, pre-product company. How, how would we know? <laughs> we, we actually don't know whether it's easier or harder. So I, I think it's a, we're, we're taking a slightly more kind of like balanced view, but there's certain categories. I think, you know, even in our portfolio, we've seen you know, the shift to e-commerce is undeniable. And there's like a slew of infrastructure providers, both on the retail side and the financial services side that have benefited from that. And that's not going anywhere. Um, but I think in the more kind of enterprise savvy categories of selling into, you know, hospitals and banks, I, I think the verdict is maybe still a little bit out about how serious folks are about digitizing uh, when you leave the kind of, best or like the largest companies in those categories. Great. Thank you. Um, you know, uh, w one, I guess, theme also of like the last year is sort of the, the consumer fintech uh, neobanks have really uh, crushed it and acquired a lot of, uh, you know, new, new customers and, and users. Um, what is your take on just the, the neobank trend or the, the challenger bank trend um, in, in general, also in the long term, and do you think do you think we'll see a hundred billion dollar neobank at some point? And if so, when? I'm like, as, as I think most of the folks in this call probably hear, have heard me like bash my head against a brick wall when it comes to like neobanks in the past. And I think in some ways, I think I've definitively been wrong. Uh, in other ways, I, I'm still holding on hope uh, as I am to my GameStop stock um but i think you're hot yeah. always scott galloway v2 is that what you're saying <laughs> i think that the, the the thought has always been or the thought i've always had is that kind of the folks that you can acquire you don't really want uh the folks you can acquire for a reasonable amount of money um you know don't have the type of financial services needs that enable you to push products that are higher margin that end up making the math work um, what I had not taken into account back when I first came across neobanks is that money would be free. Uh, and it turns out that in a world where you can, in a no interest rate world, you can raise $500, $600 million and build an amazing company. Uh, and what I'd say is that like my skepticism aside, I, I was listening to Ryan King at Chime talk about how when they realized um, that in the United States, the PPP loans were going to be delayed, uh, they actually off their own balance sheet effectively like factored that payment to their end users, which is like, I think should be celebrated, right? Like I think say what you will about like business models and capital needs and stuff like that. I think a lot of these neobanks have proven um, that they can fundamentally improve the value proposition and become a critical part of end consumers' lives. I think that same talk he was talking about the average Chime consumer uh, reaches out to Chime proactively something like three times a month. Yeah, that's a, that's a ridiculous engagement and a ridiculous like high trust, high fidelity engagement with a company that did not exist seven years ago. 
or in a category where people thought like you would always, you know, respect and treat B of A, even though they charge you an arm and leg. And I think that deserves to be celebrated. I have no idea like what gets valued at a hundred billion dollars anymore. Like who knows? Well, maybe, maybe Giannis and I will see a seed that's doing like a hundred billion dollar de novo bank. And I honestly, I w- it wouldn't be shocked. Um, and I, you know, new banks already a quarter of the way there, but I do think that there is, you know, there's an old adage, right? Never bet against amazing product. And I think that a couple of the banks have proven that they can make like undeniably amazing product experiences uh, and going ba- back is an option. So valuations are, are confusing, but I do think a couple of these guys are here to stay because they now have access to unlimited capital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree uh, pretty much with, with everything you just said, Vivek. I, I would like to say again that I don't know how much of a benchmark a $100 billion market cap should be. Like, I think there's only 10 to 15 global banks that are valued that high. Um, and these are financial institutions that have been around, you know, for hundreds of years. So I, I'm not sure necessarily how realistic that is. But that said, um, you know, are we talking 10 years, 15, 20 years down the line, then, then potentially. And again, all it takes is for Chime, Revolut uh, to uh, become a meme stock like Tesla. And, you know, they're valued at $100 billion, even though their, their total assets under management maybe don't really translate to that. Um, but, but I would say like, at least from my perspective over the last couple of years, looking at opportunities, and I don't necessarily think this is anything new, but, um, I'm much more excited about vertical banks specifically because of what Vivek mentioned in terms of, you know, in theory, the customers that you can acquire as a challenger bank are not necessarily the the most lucrative or the type of customers that you want. Whereas when it comes to vertical banks, if you can find a real niche or a real audience that is underserved, or that at least has very specific needs and you can, uh, build a unique offering and a unique product around those set of needs. I think that's a real opportunity. Do I think it can be a hundred billion dollar opportunity? Not sure, but it can definitely be a venture scale business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that there are two ways that I, at least that I think about how to answer that question. One is if you think about it, um, we already have one that's over a hundred, right. And it's kind of wrapped up. I'm talking about cash app. It's already sort of, you know, it's wrapped up within the larger square, but it is the fastest growing part of square. Um, and if you think about where it was from not existing three years ago or whatever it was four years ago uh, to where it is today, I mean, that's a seriously, you know, scaled business. Yeah. So I don't know if you consider that a challenger bank or not, but, you know, that, that is that is that is there. Um, and then the second way to think about it is I think. Look, I think there were a lot of skeptics um, about this whole, you know, challenger bank space in, you know, call it 2015 to 2018 era when a lot of them were raising money. Um, but the truth is the, the market leaders, and we see this obviously across all sorts of different categories, market leaders compound over time. And once you've broken out to, you know, somewhere around five, 10, 15 billion in market cap to go from, to go from zero to that point, is infinitely more difficult than it is to, to compound from 15 to 50 to 100, right? So I think you look at New Bank, you look at Chime, you look at some of these that are now scaled, and you know I think it's given the enormity of the TAM and given how big some of the incumbents are, I think that it's not a stretch of the imagination to see some of them, whether the valuation makes sense or not, it's not a stretch to see them, you know, 4x or you know, 8x from where they are today, given the sort of slope of the line to this point. So I do think we will, you know, see at least a few that'll, that'll reach that, that market cap. And it'll probably happen, you know, within the next three to five years. So maybe, maybe I'll just, 
I actually want to hear your perspective, both of you guys, Alan and Vivek, who, who see a lot of different opportunities than I look at or that Max looks at also here in Israel. Um, really, how do you think about sort of the vertical bank versus, you know, generalist uh, neobank approach? Um, are, are you seeing a lot of, you know, uh, upstart challenger banks or are most new, you know, banking companies really pitching sort of the, the audience focus right now? Yeah, I do think that like, uh, I mean, there's a little bit of both. I think the ones that are, are more interesting to your point do have some kind of, you know, demographic focus, right? Um, I think a lot of, you know, it's, it's very hard to be sort of the next, the, you know, the 50th challenger bank that's kind of just going after everyone, right? I think having some focus, whether it's a vertical focus and by vertical, you could, you could look at it as like a, an industry focus or you could look at it as a segment, right? Um, I do think that that's probably the right way because at this point you're the biggest question on all of these was originally was what is their customer acquisition cost do the unit economics work do you have to raise a lot of money to make them work um and i think if you have some kind of unique angle where your acquisition is lower uh or somehow you have some sort of um distribution app advantage right you think back to green dot with the walmart thing right like if you have something like that that then ties to some demographic i think that's probably the best way to go but um you know, could we see someone do something that's like a chime part two or, a, you know, like, yeah, sure. I mean, again, the market is big enough. I just think it's, you know, when you're the ninth or 10th or 11th player, it, it, it's a much difficult, much more difficult proposition. Yeah, yeah. I, I would actually say it's, it's, it's interesting, right? I think, like, Alan, I think I agree with you, um, but weirdly, somehow, like a little bit less this year. Because the existing bank value proposition sucks more than it ever has because of the interest rates. So I think maybe like a, a, a like a head-on time challenger, or it was weird to even say there would be a time challenger, but like a non-vertical bank probably could get more traction this year than they would any other year because bank interest rates are low and you know credit card rewards are meaningless this year. So like maybe this year on balance with others, it's a little bit easier to start. But I would I like broadly agree. I think. You know, where we've seen kind of vertical bank, banks succeed is when they actually have, it's actually less about the product being verticalized and more about the distribution being verticalized. Um, and I think, um, I actually don't know how many we've seen that are, have actually cracked like a channel as much as they found ways to get embedded uh, in type, some type of kind of either vertical SaaS or, you know, partnership model. Um, so again, it, it's interesting, right? Those end up becoming a lot less compelling from a pure technology standpoint. Um, but it becomes like a cash arbitrage where you can kind of get to scale really, really quickly. And then ideally those types of customers are more valuable so you can upsell lending and a few others. Um, but yeah, probably seeing more of those on balance than kind of straight up challengers. Cool. Um, so, you know, just in terms of the, uh, the, the financial services business model, um, a significant part of it is obviously driven by fees. Um, and when we look at technology, um, it seems like in the long run, a lot of these fees should be commoditized, you know, by competition and just building better, you know, plumbing and distribution and, and ways for consumers to access financial services. Um, you know, take Robinhood, for example, although, you know, maybe there's, there's other flaws there, but, um, you know, is there a risk that we're overestimating the total, total addressable market? for fintech in the long run, because ultimately we're going to wipe out a significant portion of what 
actually creates the market in the first place. It's a good question. Um, yeah, look, I think I think when you're when you're in a sort of like a disruptive industry like financial services, I think there is some amount of uh, cannibalization of what I would call bad fees, right? Uh, look at overdraft, for example, right? I think a lot of the new entrants are saying, hey, we want to get rid of that. Um, and we want to, because that's very punitive to the, to the consumer. And it's just, it's sort of bad behavior by the bank. Um, so it's a very good thing for consumers. It's a very good thing for the industry for some of these fees or some of these, I would call more punitive fees to kind of slide to zero. But at the same time, you're seeing a birth of, I won't call it new fees, but of new sources of revenue, right? So we can take the tipping in model, for example, which didn't exist five years ago. And now it seems a lot of consumer fintechs are using that you know, and, and driving significant revenue from it. Um, so it's a little bit of like, hey, with the, with the disappearance of some of the bad stuff, you can, you can all of a sudden um, see a world where there's some new models that have kind of been born. And then I would also say like the broader point, which we've been talking about this whole time, which is that the pie is growing. Demographics that weren't served before, you know, are now being served. Um, and even if you're not, uh, even if you're maybe not extracting as much economic value per customer, you're still, you're still extracting some as a new entrant and a provider and, and, and on an aggregate ba basis, because we're talking about like literally everybody, every single person on the planet, right. right. Needs, needs financial services like that, that sort of scale. So, you know, I think that, you know, while you do see some of this stuff contracting, you do see the, the pie growing and you see mm -hmm. new business models developing. And I think that will just sort of happen over time, right. As, as FinTech becomes uh, more ubiquitous. Yeah, I couldn't agree more um, with that that point. I think you know where we see um, the pie growing is is both kind of underserved demographics, but also you know I think of like you know you could run a small business on Instagram today, and that counts as a small business, right? There's there's all sorts of kind of dimensions by which you can cut that makes the number of customers not like two or three times bigger, but four or five times bigger. And I think that's one of the justifications you can give for kind of the kind of the, crazy valuations that you're seeing on certain businesses because I do think if you look at like you know, the Shopify's and Squares of the world, I think they've proven that they can touch customers that you know, pre-IPO nobody thought they can touch. Um, so I think that's that probably, I do, I do agree. I think a lot of the fees going away will decrease kind of traditional, it'll hurt incumbents because they can no longer charge those fees. But I do think there's more money to be made overall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, just in terms of fees, if we're talking about fees that the consumer feels, that, then I agree. I think we're, we're heading towards a path towards, you know, zero fees for, for, for the end consumer at the end of the day. But I think that, you know, aside from the, the tipping model that, that Alan referred to, which is growing, growing a lot now, uh, you know, interchange is like the tried and true business model fees wise for, for these, you know, fintech companies. And the consumer doesn't really feel that. In theory, they do because it's baked into the transaction, but they don't really feel that. Um, and as long as credit cards are around, which uh, Max Levchin and you know a couple other people are, are doing their best to give uh, alternatives to that. Uh, but as long as credit cards are around, even debit cards are being used uh, at large, I think that interchange will always be a fee that's going to be lucrative for, for fintechs to use as a, as a revenue source. Um, and again, I don't think that hurts the consumer as much as overdraft ATM fees, like we saw with Chime, the report that came out uh, that maybe they weren't as forthcoming as they should have been with their with their user base. Um, so, um, so yeah, it'll, it'll be tough uh, for for new 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 upstarts that don't have 
you know, $50 million in the bank to compete with more entrenched players. Uh, but, but I think at the end of the day, it's better for the consumers. Cool. Um, you know, uh, something, Alan, you mentioned earlier was sort of like the resurgence of, of lending and Vivek, you and I have talked a lot about, about this in the past and, um, you know, you did some work in the public markets on, on lending club and, um, you know, that was kind of a, a wild ride, but ultimately was kind of boom and bust for a lot of those uh, exciting companies. What current hot trend would you say is going to suffer the same fate? Like what is everyone excited about that you're shorting in the, the long run, if anything? So I think one of the things that I, I still get kind of, kind of anxious about, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that, is probably actually a little bit more kind of like, we'll call it insurance than pure financial services. I think that that like the, the full stack players in that in that category specifically uh, keep me a little bit up at night, mostly because I think only a small portion of them do anything kind of fundamentally different. When I think about like if we take lending as an allegory and we look at kind of a firm and afterpay, you know, while they're not the most elegant technical solutions, they're actually brilliant financial service products that really make the consumer experience amazing, right? Certainly in the United States, the problem is smoothing of cash flows. And nobody's really perfected that. Um, and these guys have, or they're on their way to, to perfecting that. And I think that, you know, that, that warrants a, a certain level of kind of market premium. When I think about the insurance use case, and I look at full stack solutions, for the most part, I see great customer experiences um, that are predominantly powered by kind of slick front ends and um, kind of you know, more slightly, let's say, careless onboarding and underwriting experiences. Um, and that comes back to bite you in, in a pretty bad way. And I look at the difference between kind of like, you know, trading multiples between a lemonade or a root and a progressive. And I think that yeah. there is a huge amount of ground to, to, to cover. Um, and I'm not entirely sure. Again, we're, we're in a kind of confusing market. So I, I don't believe shorting works for anyone <laughs> anymore or, or it certainly wouldn't work for me. But I yeah. think if there was one category where I said, unless the care, one of these next generation carriers was really intelligent with acquiring, using their kind of like arbitrage revenue multiple to acquire a bunch of other carriers, bolster their revenue, improve their margins, think really critically about customer acquisition. I think a couple missed quarters of revenue uh, could, could lead to a pretty significant like stock price tumble. But uh, as, as Max and his firsthand, I've been wrong about this, I think every year since 2015, so please, <laughs> I wouldn't hold your breath for me to be right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll focus maybe on a, on a specific company as opposed to a specific trend. Um, and I don't think they'll mind that I'm calling them out, but I think that Stripe is probably overvalued. Um, and I actually wouldn't be long Stripe if I had the opportunity to be, um, not because I think the Collison brothers aren't great. They're obviously brilliant, not that I've met them, but just from hearing them on podcasts, I'm pretty sure they're, they're great guys and they built an amazing company for sure. Um, I just think that they're what they're trying to do now, uh, trying to build out products in pretty much every other area of fintech that we're seeing with Treasury, uh, with their uh, with Stripe checkout, etc. Um, I'm not sure if they're best in class yet at doing this, and I think that startups are, are coming to eat their lunch. Um, startups that they're investing in as well, by the way, which we saw with uh, their investment in Fast recently and Rapid here in Israel. Um, and so I'm not sure that this sort of idea of creating this this fintech behemoth or, or payments behemoth and eating up every sort of area that has some type of 
relation to the payments ecosystem is going to work in the long term, but that's being baked into their valuation and their long term view. Um, I would much rather bet on, uh, again, specialized startups that are going to build out best in class products for each specific vertical that Stripe is trying to go after. Um, so uh, I would say that's probably my uh, like very uh, anti-consensus view of something that's that's considered hot in fintech right now. Fascinating. Um, so I don't really, unfortunately, I don't have like a category that I'm down on. Uh, I, maybe I'll, maybe I'll, uh, I'm, I guess I'm sort of the eternal optimist within fintech, which is maybe my own Kool-Aid uh, a bit too much. But look, one area that, and we haven't talked about yet, so I'll just, I'll just take us there is, take is, us there. is crypto, right? Um, uh, I, it's not, and it's not that I'm, there, but yeah. Okay, well, maybe I'll save my No, 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 please go, please go. We can jump right in. Everyone in the audience has been like, when are we going to talk? Go, go for yeah, it. Yeah, so it's not that I, again, it's not that I'm, I'm down on the category and I, you know, or, or have a particularly negative view. It's just, as I think about, you know, I started in venture, I think some, somewhere at the same time as, as Vivek in sort of like that 2016, 2017 era and saw the whole build up right in 2017 and then the, the sure. quote unquote crash in 2018 and then kind of nothing happened right for a few years there. Um, and so now you, you sort of see it again, it's a little bit of deja vu, right? It's, uh, and you kind of, you kind of ask yourself what, what is different this time? And you can kind of point to a few things about institutions and, you know, people like Elon Musk and, and others, you know, taking it more seriously this time, or maybe seriously, right? I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's hard to tell with him, but um, I just have more questions and answers really about the whole thing. I think, um, I, I see, I, I still, as I saw before, the, the store of value and sort of that use case, but it's, it's unclear, at least to me, you know, why, why this time things are different. Um, but I'd love to be educated. So if either of you have a perspective, I'm, I'm all ears. Yeah, I mean, um, I think the Fed is, you know, pumping every market. Um, and, you know, it's just when there's much more supply of money, all asset prices go up at the same time, you know, there's, a, let's say, a new trend of decentralized finance experimentation that may or may not already be solving some of the financial infrastructure issues that the legacy systems and the existing financial systems face. Um, and I will say that the user experience of sending value through crypto is actually pretty good, assuming that you're on an exchange and have you know, a wallet. So I think there are some functions that are happening. You know, I don't know if you read on uh, non-fungible tokens, the not boring write-up or the generalist write-up, I don't remember, Yonatan, you do, but um, pretty compelling case for why you know, digital scarcity around a, a uh, digital piece of art, um, you know, is, is an interesting uh, use case for kind of the public to, to transact uh, around collectibles that are, you know, nat natively digital. At the same time, it feels like VCs have such a powerful incentive to promote crypto, given that they were the early adopters, that it's hard to distinguish, you know, who's you know, really bullish and who just has such a strong financial incentives to, to put this on the loudspeaker and blow up the Ponzi scheme to the, the ultimate highest point that, 
you know, they're, they're kind of just billionaires without doing anything. Um, you know, my, my strategy has kind of been to be somewhat exposed, but not fully exposed throughout this whole run up, just because I'm traumatized by 2017, 2018, and maybe to my, um, you know, misfortune, but that's just kind of been my approach. But, you know, there, there's, there's this thing about money, it's, it's belief at the end of the day, like you need to believe in the government that, you know, basically backs the currency in today's financial system. And we've seen that that has actually collapsed currencies in the past when the government defaults or when the government is no longer, you know, um, reliable, the, the currency appreciates to the, you know, the, the Zimbabwe degree, and then the whole economy kind of collapses and needs to be bailed out by the uh, the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund, um, th there could be a case to be made that the amount of money that, you know, the, the U.S. Is, is creating right now to basically fend off collapse and complete social uh, chaos, you know, will have some negative impact on its um, clout in the future. And, you know, maybe that's what's driving the Bitcoin um, surge in addition to all this liquidity. And then my you know, view on the other world of DeFi we can get into, but it seems like a lot of the, you know, the, the, the Bitcoin uh, attention just kind of naturally bleeds into the rest of the ecosystem, regardless of how well any of these other projects are doing. And when you have a $600 billion market cap and a $300 million market cap, you know, it doesn't take much to, to move the needle on that, you know, project that really has no proof. And the same kind of thing happened in, in 2017, 2018. Everyone was piling into Bitcoin. All of these other things just started to go haywire. And then as soon as people, you know, turned psychologically on Bitcoin, the whole thing kind of collapsed and, and people lost 90% of their, their shirt. The last thing I'll say before kind of opening it up um, is that there, there seemed to be a ton of margin products in this market because it's unregulated. Um, and so I think the, the volatility that, you know, can come on the downside is significant. I would also say that we're seeing that in the public markets as well. And I don't want to get into a public market macro discussion because we'll get far away from the future of fintech, but there's definitely some, some funky things happening um, that may not have uh, a, a positive ending um, given, you know, what, what history has taught us. So. I think I think those are also I mean they're they're all awesome points, Max. Um, I would say you know like I'll start with an annoying and like oversimplified like analogy, but and I, only because it's top of mind. You know, right, right before the pandemic, I decided I was going to splurge on one of those awesome uh, wireless uh, chargers for my iPhone. I mean, you just kind of like put it on and, and you're charging, and, and it was actually one that was portable. Uh, and then the pandemic happened and my iPhone has been at like a hundred percent battery since. And I've like never had a reason to use it because it's always plugged in. And I had this like cool portable charger. I spent like $75 on and I will like literally take it to the living room just to use. Cause I like want to get to like squeeze some juice out of it. And like, that's what I've always felt like the commercial applications of crypto is like a really fat or like even what will kind of bundle blockchain into it too, which actually I think has more commercial use cases, like really fascinating, like technically sound 
Like it feels intellectually, there should be some like critical application. Um, like we've all heard the use cases in like title and in like digital identity that like, I'm certainly not technical enough to understand how it would work, but like my naive brain says that like it should, and I really want it to, and I kind of go into most pitches with optimism and it, and it hasn't yet, not to say that it won't, but I think so far it's been like a kind of a, you know, a solution, like seeking a problem, if you will. Um, that being said, one of the places that I have heard, uh, and again, this is not a space I spend a lot of time in, so kind of folks know more, please correct me. Um, but like one of the places I've been pointing to by people who do spend time in the space has been like the stable coin run up um, and how there's been certain use cases. And for example, um, you know, if Airbnb wants to pay out a someone in like sub-Saharan Africa who doesn't experience, you know, in, you know, whatever country, it costs them like $19 to remit the payment to them because it's to go from like remittance to remittance to remittance. Yeah, there are there are certain instances where a stable coin that does like an instant conversion payout could be really interesting. So I think that it, we're, we're probably in the super super early days of of finding kind of use cases for those things. I don't believe that's the reason why the prices are running up. I think it's for the same reason the prices are running up elsewhere between stimulus and unemployment checks in the United States, and the same reason like Robinhood is going bonkers. I think more people have a couple hundred bucks to throw around, and certainly in some of those like. You know the Dogecoin <laughs> kind of like earlier products, like a couple hundred bucks goes a long way across kind of a million people. Um, so I suspect that's where the the numbers are going up. But I do think that there's been some like in, in in the craziness, there's actually been a couple pretty interesting use cases that that are catching on. But they're early, early, certainly on the commercial side. Yeah, I don't have much to add here, so I won't go for so long. Uh, I think that it's funny that Max is definitely my crypto guy. Whenever I have a question about the space, and uh, it's seems that both Alan Vivek and, and also myself are all a little bit skeptical about it. So interesting that you put together a panel on the future of fintech and chose three people that don't really feel as bullish as you do about the space, Max. Um, and also not sure what that really says about either about us as, as investors that spend a lot of time looking at fintech or about um, this the, the crypto space as a whole, that people that spend a lot of time there don't necessarily <laughs> feel so strongly about it. Um, but again, I'm definitely not the right person to ask in terms of a real deep understanding of what's going on in sort of the DeFi world. So uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that from my perspective. Hopefully that gave you some education or maybe <laughs> diseducation. Um, so yeah, we're kind of wrapping up maybe time for uh, you know one, one or two more questions. I, uh, I got a question from the audience that said, what's the craziest idea you heard and think might just work in FinTech in the next few years? And I think that's a good kind of place to, to wrap things up. I heard a pitch uh, a few weeks ago of, an, of a vertical bank uh, focused on ex-convicts um, and it was founded by an ex-convict himself. Um, it was actually one of the, uh, one of the Wolf of Wall Street uh, partners um, at that firm who spent about 10 years in blue collar prison um, and then in white collar prison, sorry. And then uh, <laughs> uh, got, out of, got out of jail and, and he experienced you know, firsthand himself he, all the banks turned him away in terms of opening up a checking and savings account. He wasn't able to, he most, you know, I would say like lucrative credit cards turned him down, wasn't able to get loans. Um, and it wasn't that he necessarily wasn't good for it. He just has the stain on his record of being a convict. Um, and so he's trying to build a new bank focused on, you know, providing these financial services to individuals who in theory aren't less trustworthy, but the system just doesn't have a way to, to uh, associate risk with these individuals. Um, I mean, he's a crazy dude, so wasn't, wasn't interested in investing, but 
it was a crazy enough idea that, that I do think that maybe there's, there's room for it in the, in the marketplace. Cool. I'm going to take the, the easy way out, out on this maybe, and just say, you know, when I, when we, so we're investors in rapid and when we first, when I first heard that pitch, I didn't, I didn't think it was possible. I mean, you're talking about last mile payment collections across, you know, dozens of different geographies and, and in, in very, you know, I would call emerging markets, incredibly hard problem to, to solve. And, you know, there's a lot of bigger and bigger players that um, like Stripe, we talked about earlier that, that could do what they're doing or could eventually do what they're doing. And um, I just, you know, been totally awed and amazed by uh, the progress they've made. And um, they've definitely uh, made a believer out of me. So. Yeah. And they're advertising awesome. all over Tel Aviv right now. So thanks for, uh, thanks for giving me this. Maybe a yeah, sign of the times yeah. with all the money they've raised. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Vivek, what about you? Um, I would say, I'd say there's, there's one, I, I don't even remember the name anymore, but it was just like, it's a concept that stuck with me and certainly during the pandemic has, has kind of come back around, but it was like a, like a reverse ATM where basically you would be able to, instead of having to go pick up kind of your cash from banks, let's say, or let's say you want to deposit a check in return for some cash, you'd be able to effectively like text your bank branch, excuse me. And it would send a representative to you, to your home, to a predetermined location, uh, which sounded, that last part sounded a little sketchy. You can imagine kind of going to a park and like sitting on a bench <laughs> waiting for like a DoorDash driver to hand you a wad of cash. But it's one of those things, again, like there, I'm sure there's something that needs to be perfected about it. But like there is a, there is a genuine question about the validity of bank branches, bank branches, excuse me. And like the need for folks, particularly now during the pandemic, if you're older and you're getting you know, your checks in the mail from your employer, like you probably don't want to do that or don't want to go wait in an ATM line. Um, and it's something that went from like a ludicrous pitch to like, and there's a crazy stat, right? There's like a larger number of people like under 30 opened a bank, a bank account in person than their parents did in like 2019. Wow. Weird, because like in the United States, at least like a weird financial illiteracy problem, right? You like don't trust the internet so you're going to go make sure your account is real in person. And I, it's like, there's some weird macro trends around it that I think it, it might just work. Um, pro probably not with our money, but someone else's maybe. It, it just it might just work. Um, okay, fine. Final question, because you just made me think about bank branches. So bank branches, are they... Borders or GameStop? Uh, and neither have, were very successful <laughs> until Reddit decided to make GameStop successful, right? <laughs> Agree. <laughs> Nothing more to add. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I'd say that, like, I, I think it depends on the geography, right? Like, actually, like, uh, bank branches abroad, certainly in Southeast Asia and stuff, are an impediment. Right. There's a ton of digital first branches that um, have been able to expand without needing kind of branches. And where they do exist, they're, they're truly just kind of hubs for, for cash disbursement. I, I think in the United States, for certain banks, I think it's going to be really interesting, right? You have like a lot of banks, like the Huntington's of the world that have like built their presence because of their bank branches. Um, and I think there's, I think we'll, we'll end up seeing some really creative use cases, right? Imagine like a commercial bank branch, which is like a WeWork effectively, right? Like finding ways to repurpose that real estate to benefit your end consumer, being able to let folks do video calls from there and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so I, I do, I don't, I don't think for usual, I don't think it goes to zero, but it's hard not to see how 
um, particularly for folks who, who that was their main thrust, how that has to change. Um, and I think the hard part is going to be finding ways to digitize that experience and bring that kind of like friendly, caring, kind of one-on-one -on -one interaction online. Um, but I don't, I don't suspect we're going to see one on every corner for, for quite some time. Okay, Yonatan, Alan, Vivek, this has been awesome. Thank you guys so much for the time, the insight. I'm going to do a little write-up after the fact and, you know, um, summarize some of the, the insights and the thoughts that were shared. And, uh, yeah, I hope you guys have a, a great rest of the week um, and uh, look forward to talking again soon. Thank you to all of the attendees Thanks, as well for, for making the time. Thanks, man. Thanks, Thanks so much. Bye. Bye-bye.